What's playing at the Roxy? I'll tell you what's playing at the Roxy. A picture about a Minnesota man so in love with a Mississippi girl that he sacrifices everything and moves all the way to Biloxi. That's what's playing at the Roxy. What's in the Daily News? I'll tell you what's in the Daily News. Story about a guy who bought his wife a small ruby with what otherwise would have been his union dues. That's what's in the Daily News. What's happening all over? I'll tell you what's happening all over. Guy sitting at home by a television set who used to be something of a rover. That's what's happening all over. Love is a thing that has licked them. And it looks like Nathan's just another victim. Yes, sir, when you see a guy reach for stars in the sky, you can bet that he's doing it for some doll. When you spot a John waiting out in the rain, chances are he's insane, as only a John can be for a Jane. When you meet a gent paying all kinds of rent for a flat that could flatten a Taj Mahal, call it sad, call it funny, but it's better than even money that the guy's only doing it for some dog. When you see a Joe saving half of his dough, you can bet they'll be minking it for some dog. When a bum buys wine like a bum can't afford, it's a cinch that the bum is under the thumb of some little broad. When you meet a mug lately out of the jug, and he's still lifting platinum fal-de-ral. Call it hell, call it heaven, it's a probable 12 to 7 that the guy's only doing it for some doll. When you see a sport and his cash has run short, you can bet that he's banking it with some doll. When a guy wears tails with the front gleaming white, who the hell do you think he's tickling pink on Saturday night? When a lazy slob takes a good steady job and he smells from Vitalis and Barbasol. Call it dumb, call it clever, oh, but you can give odds forever that the guy's only This is podcast 334, entitled An Emotion Part 2, and you've just heard the title track of the original cast recording of Guys and Dolls, one of the great Broadway musicals of all time, on the very theme, which I have just left off after reading a um, corrosive couple paragraphs from Carl Jung's notes on the primordial embedded uh, prehistoric drives within men and women that cause them to act the way they do in shall we say four out of five cases let's leave room for exceptions now the um the christian hope and the actual hope for a um kind of defined set of activities a kind of um buried set of compulsions uh, not at all dissimilar to what we call original sin or original humanity, the human condition, the archaeology of human experience and human activity 
which Jung excavates and brings to the light in, I believe, a uniquely brilliant and inspired fashion. What then? What now? This is the great question of, um, of our lives, and it's really the great question of biblical Christianity. Given the limits on human choice, human endeavor, human love and belovedness, human outreach, human connection, human frustration, human barriers to connection that exist in just about everybody to greater or lesser extent because of the sort of archetypal character of human uh, accretions of, uh, of limitation based upon, as I say, these archetypes of attraction and uh, propulsion. Where's the hope? I wrote down notes for this cast early this morning, and the word simply was, if I may get my glasses on, how does God work within what he has set up? I don't argue with Jung's interpretation. My own experience personal and larger, parish and intellectual, but primarily observation and personal experience and inwardness has ratified this odd and bizarre, but almost always self-fulfilling script of men and the anima they seek to complete themselves, and women and the animus they seek to complete themselves into full human beings. All the talk of complementarity that you hear in some circles, and I never even heard the word until I um, was on the founding board of an organization called the Gospel Coalition, never even heard the word complementarity, but Jung would have simply said that the man is looking for something to complete himself, which he doesn't have as a male, which is the anima, the female soul, and the woman is looking to complete herself, something she doesn't have in her psychogenetic um, makeup, the animus, the male element. And uh, yet the search of the man for the anima differs from the search for the woman for the animus in the ways I've described. Now, if that is true, and let us imagine, let us look at our own life, let us look back upon our own experience, and I think we will see that it is largely true, if only in the imagination, and only in the hope, and only in the desire, I mean, the person that you long to be in touch with, as opposed to, uh, you know, that you, that you wanted to be in touch with when you were in ninth grade, and the person that you sort of actually had the guts to be in touch with, probably very, very different. That could even be true for you today, and it causes tremendous carnage. What is the hope? Well, how does God work? Well, I believe very much that God does work within what he has made, because I've seen it. Paula is wonderful about this, Pastor Paula White, because she, Pastor Paula White Cain, to be exact, she um, is constantly uh, pointing out the fact that what God is doing and what we think is happening are almost 180 degrees at times, especially at times of great need and trouble and despair and closed doors. What we see happening, what we observe happening, what we actually enact in our own lives, which she would call the natural is often at complete odds with what God is actually doing and intending and where he is working, which is the supernatural. And sometimes he's working so completely behind the scenes, and I would say often, you don't even see. You have no idea what he's actually doing. You think he's doing one thing, and then in 10 years you'll realize that in the very thing you thought he was doing, he was actually doing its opposite. It's just a fact about God and man. They are two different. They work in two different fields, to use the old uh, gospel expression. They're two different fields, two different worlds. 
And uh, what has uh, brought this home to me in a fresh way heute, today, in recent times, is, but I've always loved his work, is the short stories and the poetry of... Uh, Damon Runyon. Now, I won't go into a long song and dance about Damon Runyon, and there's a lot of conjecture about what was his religion, and uh, actually it's fairly well known what his what his religious formation was, and what was he reacting against, and what was he drawn to, and why did he visit churches of all different kinds, especially Catholic churches, because they were open um, during the day, uh, what was going on with the enormous uh, presence of uh, a kind of unartificial or rather natural Christianity in a great many of his stories. What's going on there? I don't know the biographical deal um, um, facts of it, really. I know some, and I could go into a long song and dance, as I said, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to report that in the work of Damon Runyon, you have an enormously experienced, uh, able perception of men and women and how they relate. That's why I um, excerpted uh, the title song for his great musical, or that is to say the musical that was based on his short stories, two in particular, Guys and Dolls, because I wanted to emphasize his uh, tremendous insight into men and women. He talks about the guy from Minnesota who falls for the girl from Mississippi and he moves to Biloxi. That's all slang to say that uh, he's describing how men throw themselves in one direction, completely contrary to type, and women will do the same. And you see it again and again and again um, in the ways that Jung described. So if Jung wanted to sort of see a living Broadway expression of what he was talking about from someone who didn't really have any uh, connection at all or intercourse with what Jung was talking about, at least uh, in terms of the apostolic succession of their thoughts, no connection whatsoever, you would find a universal understanding in the works of uh, Damon Runyon. And I would specifically say that... Um, if you look at the, uh, let's I have it right here. If you look at the, um, if you look at the, uh, there it is, Guys and Dolls, or the Idol of Miss Sarah Brown. That is the uh, short story that um, um, tells the story of the Salvation Army uh, officer the lovely Sarah Brown, who falls in love with, and he with her, Nathan Detroit. That is um, just uh, a remarkable story, and Marlon Brando, and is it Gene Simmons? In the Vincent Minnelli movie version of it, which is so memorable. And uh, then Blood Pressure, which is a subset of that uh, theme. And then I look down the list and I see, oh my gosh, Madame La Gimp, which was then made by Frank Capra in 1933 and to the quite remarkable grace-filled imputation um, embodying uh, movie um, what was it called? The Lady, Luck Be a Lady, Lady Luck, something like that. I've suddenly forgotten the title of Frank Capra in 1933, but I know that it was remade by Capra himself in the late 50s. Was it not Pocket Full of Miracles? Lady for a Day, that's it. Lady for a Day, and then Pocket Full of Miracles with Glenn Ford and Betty Davis, all based on um, Madame Le Gimp by... Um, 
Damon Runyon. And so then I'm watching uh, his uh, story, little his short story, which is very famous among um, American short stories, called The Old Doll's House. Uh, you've never heard of it. I'd never heard of it until recently, but it was made into two movies. <laughs> it was made into two movies, one of which is extraordinarily moving. I think it's called... Uh, the Stroke of Twelve from 1941 with that wonderful actor who played Mr. Lucky. Forget the name, but it was directed by Gene Nagalesco, who did all sorts of famous movies. And then it was made into the same made into a movie in the 30s. Um, and uh, it uh, tells the story of a ordinary tale of direct imputation of a sort of gangland type, a lowlife, who turns into, uh, uh, is completely changed by an act of almost magical imputation by an old, um, sadly unmarried lady. In the movie she's married, but in the, uh, in the story she's not. And so as I was reading this, and I've always noticed it, it's, uh, I saw it in Guys and Dolls, the movie originally, where the Salvation Army scenario is so true, so accurate to the way the Salvation Army works with a lot of reality thrown in. I thought to myself, this guy understands all these things. So what, is it, what, what am I saying? It is possible when you understand how men and women really act. Let's imagine it were true that men are generally chasing after an anima and women are generally um, find themselves drawn to an animus, uh, but it's quite a different uh, cat. The anima and the animus are quite different, as Jung, exp Jung explains. Then um, how would we live? I mean, how do we live if we're really governed? How do you and I live if we're governed by forces beyond our control? How do we... Um, how do we exist with any sense of freedom? How does God, how do our lives have happiness if we're, if we're driven towards targets that are irrational and outside of our mental control, which I believe they are for the most part. You know, we don't really believe in fully free will because if we, I mean, I don't believe in free will at all, but I have to say this in deference to those I know and love who do believe or say they believe in free will. How does an addict have free will? How does a drunk have free will? How does a man who is possessed by the desire for an anima or a woman who's utterly drawn to a ridiculous figure because of the animus projection that is primordial and goes back two million years, what is what, what 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 sort of how's God working there? Well, God is. You see, um, the, the stories of Damon Runyon. Not everyone, but probably three quarters of them are about uh, people who are living in contexts, low life contexts, low life uh, people who are one step above the law, one step apart from the law. Um, and um, good Lord, um, every one of them. There's some kind of redemptive love interest. In every one of them, the villain, almost always it catches up with them, as our wonderful uh, friend Susanna Layton says. God, I, I, she says, I, God almost never seems to come early. We do, she would also add, and I would agree with Susanna, God almost always comes. He almost, almost always arrives for our good, but he almost never comes early. And that's something I've always been puzzled by. I don't understand why that's true, but it is true. But in Damon Runyon, the, the bad are, um, ultimately find themselves caught by their own malice or evil designs. And the good are almost, especially the humble good, are almost always rewarded in time by love of some kind of wonderful sort. Even if it's Jungian love, it's real love, and it's lasting love, and it's sacrificial love, it's altruistic. There's a huge altruistic element of uh, loving that happens in most 
of these stories and justice in most of uh, um, Damon Runyon. And while he's not wholly writ, Damon Runyon is not wholly writ, and I don't think he necessarily really had any kind of agenda whatsoever religiously, but he's something uh, like a lot of artists, something that is um, that is beyond the... Uh, the uh, ABC beyond the two and two equals four inspired him to uh, produce these um, extraordinary uh, stories and our lives are that way. I mean, no one could have predicted to me that I would have chosen necessarily the career in the form I chose it, the ministry, the woman whom I've been married to almost for 50 happy, wonderful years. That was... um, that may have been governed tremendously by primordial forces, and yet God worked through a number of these primordial forces to create a, a, a backstory that became a front story with which, at this point in my life, I'm uh, really satisfied. I mean, there's some elements in it that I would change immediately, and a couple of large things that I would alter totally. I would simply, there's a story called The Mind of Simon Foster by Michael J. Straczynski, which was done for the last series of A Twilight Zone in 1988-1989, in which a, a man is able to sell his certain memories that he has, that he's willing to sell, that aren't crucial to him, and he's sort of a troubled soul, and he sells his memories until at the end of the story, he has no memories of his own, and it's a very pathetic and tragic story. Uh, it has an interesting and not entirely logical conclusion, but um, there's some memories I'd love to sell. Don't you have a few? Don't you have a few experiences that you had probably long ago, maybe yesterday, that you'd just as well, if someone paid you $100 or $100,000 or 50 cents, you'd, um, there are a couple of memories I'd sell. But that doesn't mean that God has not been working in the context of uh, whether it's Jungian archetypes or whether it's psychological drives of this, that, or the other kind, or genetic materials, or different givens that uh, about my life, whether they're experiences or legacies or um, attitudes inherited, you know, the whole blend of environment and genes, uh, uh, God still works. And I've found in um, uh, Runyon a kind of delightful reminder that even within the givens of this uh, low-life class of impossible people um, who are all damaged, damaged goods, and basically low-life criminal goods, many of whom get shot and killed and murdered or murder others in the course of these stories. Uh, There's uh, a just God working, and there's a graceful God working, and that's the story of my life too, and I wanted to give that to you, and I'm going to end by... um, by we're going to play one of the most religious... It's a little equivocal. I love the ending of it. It's one of the most religious... um, um, numbers in all of the Damon Runyon Broadway chorus. A lot of movies were made from Damon Runyon's stories and other things, but I'll play the end, one of his most religious and touching, and he believed it. You'll see. Now, I do want to say one other thing. I, I know a couple of real lowlifes in New York. One of the joys in my life has been a couple of people uh, who are uh, would have normally be considered on the true margins. So I know a couple of Damon Runyon characters. Uh, I knew quite a few at one point, and I um, real Damon Runyon characters, even though New York has radically changed, and where the language of Runyon's time was um, Italian and Yiddish, uh, uh, the sort of under language, the under language of today would undoubtedly be Spanish and uh, 
maybe Creole, a number of different sub-languages there. But um, I've known some real people who were really basically one step out of um, jail. And uh, I saw God work not so long ago in the life of one of the most of, uh, you might say, on the edge, marginal people who had a lot of marginal friends, and I got to know them. Um, in New York City fairly recently. And I've seen God work so dramatically in this uh, person's life, um, two people actually, that it, it boggles my mind. And uh, it's a David Runyon story that despite the givens and the prison records and the terrible, terrible early experiences and early actions uh, that have uh, brought a person into a cage of, uh, you might call it, psychogenetic or emotional um, um, prison, jail. Uh, God has worked behind the scenes through those very things uh, to produce a joy and a happiness and a power and even a judgment of those things that were negative and harsh and possibly um, really vicious in uh, the situation. And I've watched it. So I've even in the David Runyon street side scape in New York City, I've seen the truth that God... As Paula would say, what is happening in the supernatural is often completely distinct from what is happening in the natural, and it comes out later, and then you see that God was in it all the time. Thanks so much, and we hear a little bit of Damon Runyon to finish. Love you. I dreamed last night I got on the boat to heaven and by some chance I had brought my dice along And there I stood And I hollered, someone fade me But the passengers, they knew right from wrong For the people all said, sit down Sit down, you're rocking a boat People all said, sit down Sit down, you're rocking a boat And the devil will drag you under By the sharp lapel of your checkered coat Sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down Sit down, you're rocking a boat I sailed away on that little boat to heaven And by some chance found a bottle in my fist And there I stood nicely passing out the whiskey But the passengers were bound to resist For the people all said beware, all said, you're beware. on a heavenly trip beware. People all said beware, all said, beware. beware you scuttle a ship And the devil will drag you under by the fancy tie round your wicked throat Sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. you're rocking a boat